0: The Book Review podcast has been around for almost 14 years, and we would love to hear your feedback. Let us know what you think by joining our panel at nytimes.com slash review. Thanks so much. Why has the level of political discourse become so low? Alan Wolfe will be here to talk about his new book, *The Politics of Petulance*. Who was Lucia Berlin, and what's behind the renewed interest in her writing? John Williams will talk to Nadja Spiegelman, who reviews two recent collections of Berlin's work. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, our critics Dwight Garner, Paul Siegel, and Jen Salai will join us to talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review podcast from the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Alan Wolfe joins us now from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He is a professor emeritus of political science at Boston College and the author of 23 books. His latest is called The Politics of Petulance, America in an Age of Immaturity. Alan, thanks so much for being here.
1: Sure, my pleasure.
0: This is not a cheerful book. (laughs) Did you start writing this immediately after the election, or was this in the works before that?
1: Well, immediately after the election, like the very next day, I went – for a long planned trip to Israel. And that gave me a chance for a couple weeks to think about it. And I came home and tackled this book. Yeah, like so many people, I just was obsessed by what happened and shocked at my inability to predict the outcome.
0: In your acknowledgments, you also say, it sounds like this, this book, you were unable to predict the outcome because you say that the idea of this book stemmed from conversations with your agent, but it ended up being quite different from what you originally envisioned. How so? That's right.
1: I think the original idea that my agent thought would be good and I, to which I agreed, I just didn't choose that path, was to write a sort of collective biography of the thinkers that I call the mature liberals in the book, people like Richard Hofstetter and Daniel Bell and so on. I think someone should do that. I think it would be a fascinating subject. You know, uh, we just learned, for example, in part thanks to the New York Times Book Review, that one of those people, Saul Bellow, is deserving of two massive volumes. Yes. Uh, so this- an extraordinary amount that can be done. I just was so overcome, however, by Trump's victory that I pushed that on the back burner. In fact, it's so far on the back burner that anyone out there who wants to take on that task, I would gladly encourage.
0: And yet those mid-century intellectual figures do play a role in this book. How do you sort of tie that together?
1: Well, definitely, so many of them were shaken by the McCarthy years in ways that are pretty similar to the way uh, so many of us have been shaken by the Trump years. What struck me uh, uh, in reading them was it didn't matter what their subject was. It could be Reinhold Niebuhr talking about God, or Lionel Trilling talking about Jane Austen, or Daniel Patrick Moynihan talking about the conditions of the urban poor. But running throughout all of it, was this emphasis on the need for maturity and the dangers that occurred from acting immaturely or irresponsibly and so on. So they were all tied together mm-hmm. in that, I think, very interesting way.
0: So there are two kind of parallels here. There's the parallel problem the McCarthy versus the Trump era with the very obvious actual tie of, of Roy Cohn. And then there's the response to that problem and and perhaps a parallel or absence of parallel there. So I want to start with the problem. I mean, in what ways is the current political situation comparable to the McCarthy era?
1: Well, Roy Cohn is too good, even <laughs> You know, that's for a novelist. I mean, that's just uh, essentially remarkable. But for me, the the underlying problem was this problem of America's penchant for despotism, penchant for something resembling populism, a search for quick answers, uh, almost visceral turning away from thoughtfulness from reason, from understanding that politics is just simply not capable of satisfying people's immediate emotions. We want something. We want it now. And the anger underneath that, which we now see you know, all over Europe as well as in the United States, is a perfect example of what I'm calling political maturity, unreflective, immediate, lacking complexity, lacking nuance. Those were the features that Bell and Hofstetter and so on wrote about over and over and over again. I think they're much more appropriate to our era than it was to the era in which they were writing.
0: The other possible parallel there is the the idea of a witch hunt, where you have an actual w- witch hunt during the McCarthy era, and then the accusations of a kind of witch hunt today. So, But it seems that there are important differences there.
1: Yeah, well, now we know that there's a McCarthy among us because President Trump has said so. <laughs> all the forces that you know, he sees against him. Uh, but talking furiously, witch hunts, conspiracies, the populistic ur- urges, uh, they're, they're strikingly similar. And they make you tend to conclude that they're a permanent feature of American politics going all the way back probably to the founders and their reading of Aristotle and their worries about the demagogues in ancient Greece. But one thing certainly is different now, and that is we elected someone as president of the United States who shares those features. That simply hasn't been our experience at all in the 20th century. This is really the first time in the modern era that we have someone in office who manifests all of those tendencies in extremists, mm-hmm. one would have to say.
0: And yet, it sounds like you're arguing that 2016 isn't really an aberration, but is part of this continuum of demagoguery in American politics, at least dating from the 20th century.
1: Maybe uh, too influenced by that brilliant writer, Richard Hofstadter, who also, when he wrote about the paranoid style, in American politics, both said that it was a persistent feature, you know, we see it in the Illuminati, the Bavarian and so on, but that it was also remarkably more powerful in his period. That's pretty much exactly my approach. You don't create something out of nothing. Trump didn't, you know, just suddenly pop up full-born. He's tapping into deep currents in American cultural and political life, yet he's so extreme and he possesses such exaggerated features of those tendencies, that you could also say that he's unique. In any case, forgive me, Pamela, I'm simply not (laughs) going to probably get into that question of whether this is just one more episode in a long, continuous thing or something brand new. It's both.
0: For those who haven't read Richard Hofstadter or aren't familiar with his work, explain what he was referring to when he wrote about the politics of paranoia and what he was responding to.
1: People haven't read him; They really should. It's rare that a historian from uh, quite some time ago by now, and who also died tragically young, could be so relevant to our present era. But this notion of a paranoid style of searching for conspiracies is a very, very powerful concept. And it certainly surrounds the Trump administration and Donald Trump himself and many of his followers. But it also has some kind of resonance on the left as well. There are conspiracy theories on the left, or I guess you could call it the left. There's something called skepticism, which is very healthy. We ought to be skeptical of what we're told, but there's something called suspicion, which is not healthy at all. And I see Hofstadter as probably more than any other writer of the previous generation drawing out the tension between those two different ways of thought. But let me also give credit to Daniel Bell and Trilling and Nibor and so on. They were just absolutely brilliant intellectuals. They are a truly remarkable group of thinkers.
0: Were the public intellectuals of that era effective in terms of modulating the impact of demagoguery?
1: They were for a while. John F. Kennedy knew many of these people. He knew Arthur Fleshkin Jr. very well and hired him, and he was a reader. He gave a commencement address. I think it was a commencement address at Yale University, which was almost a re-saying, a rethinking of Daniel Bell's theories about the end of ideology. That was the peak, I think, of their influence Uh, after Kennedy was shot. Killed, you had a very different kind of presidency, and i don 't think we 've ever gone back to that era it 's questionable whether writers of this kind should have direct impact upon an administration but that 's certainly not you know to the degree that i 'm trying to keep that tradition alive, however, well or badly, I succeeded. I personally would have no interest in directly influencing someone running for president. I see that kind of intellectual work in the background shaping. What American culture looks like, because there's nothing fixed about America's political culture and writers and intellectuals could play a major role in reshaping it and redefining it.
0: Is there any equivalent in terms of public intellectuals or the quality of discourse today?
1: there are many uh, important public intellectuals today, and there is certainly a a younger generation. Uh, I'm not one of those people that, you know, feels competition from people much younger than myself. I'm, I'm glad that they're out there, and I'm glad that they're writing. Well, one writer, Russell Jacoby, said quite some time ago that what really killed public intellectual life is the university, because the university started to expand, and it grabbed up people like Irving Howe and so on and turned them into academics. I think there's a lot of truth to that idea, but if it's true, the universities are closing now. Not necessarily closing down, Mm -hmm. but closing against the kind of broad intellectual work that someone like Irving Howe stood for. So every academic department in every field, philosophy, political science, literature, they're becoming more and more specialized, more and more rewarding, narrower gauge articles and journals rather than books. I think that 's uh, unfortunate for the academy, but for intellectual life it 's great we 're going to have a lot more people who are freed from what I see as just the increasingly horrifically narrow prejudices of academic work who be- who could become public intellectuals and give a real gift to our culture
0: The problems that you 're talking about in terms of the current state of democracy are it's a very grim picture so I'm curious sort of how those thinkers are able to contend with what you describe as the politics of petulance and an immature democracy define a little bit what you mean by those two phrases and and how are intellectuals able to respond to those or are they
1: Politics of petulance or, you know, uh, something along those lines that I'm talking about is essentially a lack of imagination about what politics can accomplish. I talk to a lot of people out there in the country, so to speak, not in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and when I talk to people about politics, uh, often I'll get this pause and this kind of sense that people think they're about to say something really deep and serious, and then they come out with, I hate politics, you know, or politics is lousy. That's the kind of attitude I think needs to be challenged every time I hear it. I go back to Aristotle and to Hannah Arendt's writings about the classical thinkers like Aristotle. Politics is a noble endeavor. It's a great endeavor. It's the way in which we collectively act together as a people without resorting to warfare and violence, hopefully. We were so fortunate that the founders of this country, however you want to classify them, federalist or anti-federalist, were people that were steeped in that tradition of classical political thought. We were fortunate that at the moment of our greatest crisis, We're now in the second greatest crisis, but our greatest crisis is the Civil War. We had a man like Abraham Lincoln, who was such a brilliant writer and thinker. We've come through these things before, and I believe that we are capable, if inspired by the right kind of leaders, to at least have some of our thinkers return to that nobler way of thinking about politics. Like everybody else, we're talking now at the moment when we're celebrating the life of George Herbert Walker Bush, and it's often said that he's the last of the gentleman thinkers of the Protestant establishment. That was a rich tradition, even though Ross Douthat is very much more conservative than I, I agree in many ways with his lament for the loss of that tradition of, what everyone it gentlemanly reform and so on. I, I wish we had a Republican Party that was committed Noblesse oblige is not perfect, but it's so much better than what the Republican Party stands for now. So
0: how do you reconcile that noble vision of politics, as it should be and as it can be, with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, who you describe as certainly one of America's worst presidents and if not the worst. And you argue that his election cannot easily be dismissed as a function of Russian interference, you know, poor campaign management by his opponent, the sort of fragmentation of the media. So how did we get to Donald Trump then, given that vision of politics, that optimistic vision?
1: Perhaps you'll forgive an answer based in part upon a reading of Greek tragedy, but I I almost feel like we had to come to this point of of, uh, electing the very worst man, the least qualified man one could ever imagine, to our highest office. Before we could begin the process uh, of rethinking what it's about. So if we had talked just before the recent elections in which the Democrats gained 40 seats, I might sound a tad more pessimistic. But what I see emerging is a very, very fascinating group of younger politicians with a, with a broader vision and We'll see what happens, but I could, I could at least imagine, I don't want to give it odds, ah, 10%, 20%, but I could imagine that the Trump era will so stand out as an example of the worst that can happen when American culture sinks into its lowest form of immaturity, that this will be the turning point. Toward a more reflective politics. I certainly, uh, I was active in supporting many of these younger, uh, female and African American and, and Hispanic and now even Muslim candidates for Congress as a source of great, great encouragement. In fact, we may be, uh, if we have a problem going forward, it may be there are too many good candidates in the Democratic Party right now
0: that does sound very optimistic i'm curious again not to not to bring you down away from that 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 optimism but i mean people point to these changes in the mechanics of democracy that make that kind of vision feel overly optimistic you know the combination of of the gerrymandering and citizens united and a fragmented media and all of the disinformation and the income inequality and do you think that our politics can surmount those challenges?
1: Well, you have to just make distinctions. Certain things, like the fact that Wyoming has two senators, as does New York State, there's nothing at this point we can do about that. I don't see how we could ever change the Constitution. That's a serious problem. Gerrymandering, however, is something we can do something about, and the courts have actually been surprisingly aggressive in questioning some of these overt tactics. I'm fascinated by what's going to happen just in the next couple of months in Wisconsin and North Carolina, where you get this uh, extraordinary breaking of all the norms and all the rules of democracy and not turning over power peacefully to the other party. That's a very, very serious breach of our democratic norms. And all I can say is if they get away with that, well, the pessimistic side will be proven. I hope they don't get away with it in order to encourage the more optimistic side.
0: The book itself, The Politics of Petulance, America in an Age of Immaturity, feels in many ways like a very pessimistic book. But you sound less pessimistic now. I mean, is, is that a function of the results of this most recent midterm election?
1: To some degree. I agree with your characterization. I wrote it, as I think so many felt, like myself, reflecting on election night, oh, my God, or technical term, oh, you know, what's going to happen now? But things have not gone as badly as one might expect, and... Yeah, it's a reflection of what happened in, in the recent congressional elections and what it looks like may be happening as the Republican Party retreats into its hardcore base and therefore loses support among the larger countries. So that's a factor. But I don't think it's the only factor. I think the real factor is, I, you know, I, I, I so much... Want to resist the tendency that some intellectuals have of "I told you so." Mm -hmm. My era was the great era, and it's all going downhill. I've seen that happen so often that I don't want to fall into that camp. So, if I can find a way to be optimistic, and in that context, one of the things I say in the book is that I think there's more political maturity among twenty-year-olds in the United States right now than there is among seventy-year-olds. That it's the old angry white people. I'm old, (laughs) I'm white, I'm not that angry wouldn't be
0: that angry? All right. Well, I hope for your sake and for all of our sakes that you are right and that you don't have to say, I told you so. <laughs> right. Alan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my
1: pleasure.
0: Alan Wolf is the author of The Politics of Petulance: America in an Age of Immaturity. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at NYTimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us. And of course, email us at any time.
2: This is John Williams, and I'm joined by Naja Spiegelman, who wrote a lovely review this week in the book review of two books by Lucia Berlin, Evening in Paradise, More Stories, and Welcome Home, a memoir with selected photographs and letters. Naja is the author of a memoir, I Am Supposed to Protect You from All This, and she is also the online editor of the Paris Review, but she's made time in her schedule to be here. Hi, Naja.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Nadja Berlin is one of these writers who uh, is one of those wonderful rediscoveries for people. Just in recent years, her work has kind of come back to light, and I'm I'm curious how you first came to it.
3: In 2015, when A Manual for Cleaning Women came out, a sort of recollection of all of the stories that had been published during her lifetime and never received the acclaim that they deserved, and became an overnight sensation, spending weeks on the bestseller list and creating an instant new space for her in the canon of American writers and American women writers. I was totally unaware of that happening. Um, (laughs) I was living in Paris. I was trying to finish my book. I was sort of vaguely aware on the internet that my friends were reading something they were excited about, but I was reading very selectively at that time. And it wasn't until this second collection came out, or I got it in galleys a few months ago, that I discovered her work for the first time and felt a little embarrassed to be so late to it, but also fell in love in that deeply mm. personal, like, this writer is mine, this writer is speaking to me, no one else will ever understand the depth of the love that I feel for this, <laughs> um, that I think Lucia Berlin's writing sparks in so many people. Why do you
2: think that is? I, I agree completely. I I can't claim her. I don't think. I I feel like there is something. You have a great line in the review, actually, where you say, "In death, she became the." We should say that she died in 2004. She was 68 years old, and uh, and and lived a pretty hard life, which we'll discuss a little bit. But you have this great line in the review where you write, "In death, she became the patron saint of every coastal cool girl, every exhausted mother, every daydreamer of plane tickets, every chaser of her next broken heart." As not a coastal cool girl, I think there probably is of this that I can't relate to, but i I do love her and I, I know a lot of female friends in particular who do think of her as a kind of saintly figure, and I wonder why why you think that is
3: there's an intimacy to her writing the feeling that you've that you've walked into a story that she was that she was already telling and will keep telling and will keep telling in all these different ways. A lot of her stories began as bedtime stories that she told her sons about her own life, and you can tell when you're reading especially when you're reading these two volumes together evening in paradise and welcome home from her memoirs and when you're reading them when you're reading her entire body of work you can see how often she's retelling and retelling and retelling the same stories trying to hit them from different angles trying to like see how they they to see the different things that can pull you through the narrative and there's something about that that feels even when you're hearing it for the first time, where you already want to have been hearing it for the 20th time and you want it to be like you're in a bar with your friend and she's telling that story again, and you love hearing it so much. The writer Rebecca Bengal described Lucia Berlin as having a graveside bedside manner, <laughs> and I love that phrase. I think it's very true. I think that there's something where it feels like like she's she's a friend who's going to tell you the hard truths. she's that best friend. you wish you had in middle school, the one who is totally fearless, the one who is fiercely loyal, the one who is going to like, like drag you onto a moving train and then like get you home in times that you won't be punished by your parents. Like it's like she, she can do both at once, be both incredibly tender and compassionate, but also incredibly reckless. And I think that that combination, especially it's a very specifically feminine strength and that that without anything about its femininity undercutting its strength. And I think that there's something about that that appeals so strongly to women
2: readers and let's talk about some of the raw material because you had mentioned something about you know someone telling you these stories at a bar and i do think that they're more redolent of bars than they are bedtime stories you mentioned <laughs> her telling these to her sons and they they're they're fairly bleak for bedtime stories so let's talk a little bit about her life and and some of the things she went through and some of the materials she was drawing on because the stories are highly autobiographical
3: she grew up bouncing all over the northwest in these small mining towns her father was a mining engineer and it was a lot of sort of Campfires and mosquitoes, and then um, during World War II, while her father fought in the war, she went down to Texas to live with her mother's grandparents and her mother. After the war, her father, when she was thirteen, her father moved the family to Santiago. Then she went to the University of New Mexico. Then she zigzagged through the country from New York to California. She lived so many different lives, not just geographically, but also in terms of the the strata and tenor of the lives she was living. She lived very glamorous lives. She lived very down-and-out lives. She lived very adventurous lives, and like zigzagging across Latin America with her two sons and the man she was in love with who was addicted to heroin, but also very boring lives as like a very trapped housewife to a sculptor husband who saw her just as an aesthetic object that needed to be fixed and made her sleep face down so that her upturned nose would be flattened she was Mm. she was so many different kinds of women within her lifetime and yet she was also so completely herself at least through her stories the voice is so consistent she
2: she she lived such a jam-packed life mm -hmm. and and i think by the time she was 30 i think she had four children and three failed marriages Mm -hmm. and she struggled with alcoholism This book of memoirs, Welcome Home, is some letters that she wrote. It's also some sketches she wrote about the places she had lived. There's something very incomplete about this book, but what do we get from it that we maybe don't get from the stories or that we do get from the stories? Is it a different sense of her?
3: We do get a different sense of her. One of the things that is interesting is that so the companion volume that's being simultaneously published, it begins with an unfinished memoir, then has in its center this list of houses, which is one of my favorite things that she's ever written, which is just like this very, very staccato terse list of the trouble with all the houses she's lived in, ends with all of these letters. And one thing that's most interesting in her letters is hearing how, how much more herself she is in her fiction. In her letters, she kind of sounds... Like anyone. Yeah, but, there's
2: something sort of uh willfully upbeat in a few of the yeah. letters that she doesn't really <laughs> let seep into the story.
3: Yeah. And then in the in the memoir, you are given the gift of chronology, which is part of what I appreciate also in that list of houses, is that in some ways it's a it's a sort of the spine, the spine on which like the rest is is built. She's so lucid visual sensory in her in her writing she's incredible it's all sort of this like snuffling sniffing touching feeling of the world but she is totally uninterested in in dates and so when you're reading her short stories even if you get a sense that they're based on her life you don't it's impossible to hold together any kind of chronology of her life.
2: Mm. Um, you can see how a life like that could sort of blur together. I mean, yeah. <laughs> she was on the move so much that it would be hard to kind of figure out what happened Yeah, then.
3: And in her in her memoir, she organizes things not by date, but by, but by house, by place. Even in the memoir section, it's organized city by city and begins almost always in each city with a description of the house that she lived in. And so you understand, there was something that my mother, I, my memoir is about my mother, and when I was asking her, About her life, she had found these diaries of her past, and she was totally uninterested in the ways in which the diaries contradicted her own memories, and specifically contradicted the chronology of her memories. And she tossed them aside, telling me, but Naja, I don't remember things chronologically. I remember them geographically. Hmm. And I feel like that's true of Berlin also. Like She clearly had a very geographic, spatial memory of the places where she had been.
2: You obviously, after reading these books, went back and devoured *A Manual for Cleaning Women*, mm-hmm. and <laughs> you're, you're now as devoted a Berlin fan, I think, as exists. So, this new collection of stories, *Evening in Paradise*. Do these stories compare well with the Manual for Cleaning Women*? Do you feel like it's the same level of quality in terms of the selection and what was left to to mine?
3: It's so hard to know, having read them, quote unquote, backwards, mm. and many of the stories in *Evening in Paradise* are different tellings of stories that appear elsewhere in Manual Manual for Cleaning Women. Some of my favorite stories in Manual for Cleaning Women have to do with her time working in a hospital or as a cleaning woman or stories about her mother, of which there are very few in Evening in Paradise. But Manual for Cleaning Women is presented as colon selected stories, Mm -hmm. and Evening in Paradise is presented as colon more stories. And it does sort of feel that way, that Manual... For Cleaning Women was a very selected, like, okay, if we can only have one version of this story, this is the one we want to have. But Evening in Paradise feels like a real gift because I think part of what makes her so appealing as a writer's writer is the ways in which she shows her art and shows all the seams and that you can see her rethinking and rewriting the same story over and over again. And it's no less masterful. And so for me being able to see a fuller scope of her work— Felt really precious.
2: But. She gets compared, and and this happened immediately too, when a manual for cleaning women was published, to such writers as you write in the review as Richard Yates, Raymond Carver, Chekhov. I've heard her compared to Dennis Johnson and to Grace Paley. I think that there's something in her work that would appeal to readers of everyone from you know Laurie Moore to George Saunders and contemporary writers. Is there anyone in particular that among those or someone else who you think she reminds you of, or is she sui generis?
3: I mean, I think I think that she does have a little bit of all of those writers. And I think that for a lot of the writers you just named, part of why she gets compared to them is down to like the very fundamental superficial, not superficial, but it's just it's down to the fact that she is an American writer, even though she is not always writing about America. Often she's writing about Latin America. But there's there's a way in which she writes about America that feels so visceral and like an America that has been there all along, but like you didn't you didn't know it wasn't being captured in these ways mm-hmm. but but part of what i love about her too is that she does she does feel sui generous she has she she would never had a formal education writing she says she majored in journalism by mistake
2: she, doesn't everyone <laughs>
3: doesn't everyone i mean it feels like every major is a mistake at this point <laughs> but um but she um she taught herself how to write through reading and was clearly a very careful reader and then sought out writers like the black mountain poets with whom she became friends who who gave her feedback on her stories but you can tell you can hear in her letters at the end of welcome home how how angry she is at the publishing world and the publishing industry not actually because they're not giving her enough recognition one of the things that makes her angriest as she writes in a letter to her friend ed dorn is when publishers ask her for more pages and offer to give her money for stories she hasn't yet written and she's so insulted by that because her stories are not pages and they can't be quantified by by the amount of them that she has written and how dare they like stories that she hasn't written yet or that they haven't read yet like that that offends her to her core um and and there's something yeah well it's also just like she she really wants recognition but she wants recognition for what it is that she is doing and she hates the idea that like oh she's been sort of cast as a type. She's like she can do this. She's that kind of writer and like they're going to buy they're going to buy those superficial things about her. And I think I think that's that's visible too when you're reading her that she is she is so she does feel like she is reinventing so much of what a short story can be while being very aware of what a short story is, but they they start in the wrong place they end in the wrong place they are both like incredibly maximalist in terms of their sensory detail but incredibly minimalist in terms of like
2: (laughs) they're often very short
3: yeah they're often (laughs) very short sometimes she's playing with different styles like an evening in paradise there's a story called the wives that is like so much like a play and then there's a dondo a gothic romance which is so much like a gothic romance and yet like her voice is her voice is very consistent throughout them like i do feel like you could read any one of her stories and be like oh that's a lucia berlin story because Mm -hmm. she has such a specific angle on the world i do think that she is sui generis in a lot of ways and it is it's why people were so excited to discover her writing in the first place
2: yeah, well, and you're one of them. I mean, with the caveat that this word has some connotations sometimes that are that, that marginalize people, there's definitely a cult of Lucia Berlin. I yeah. think it's a really big one. Mm-hmm. You're definitely a fully paid member now. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to read the very long last paragraph of your review because it's very lovely and moving, but I, I would urge people to go find it for themselves in this week's issue of the book review. Nadja, thanks so much for being here.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Joining us now to talk about what's going on in the publishing world, our publishing reporter, Alexandra Alter. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Pamela. So you've got some numbers for us. I do.
4: It's a numbers-heavy kind of week. You know, I'm always interested at the end of the year to sort of take stock of how different categories have done and how publishers are doing overall and sort of try to suss out any kind of trends. And one of the most interesting and sort of, I guess not surprising, but pretty dramatic shifts that we've seen in the last couple of years is a really steep decline in fiction sales which has been offset by a rise in nonfiction. It's almost, you know, a direct reflection of what's going on in our politics and in our culture. People are just obsessed with the news out of Washington, and that is reflected in book sales. So what we've seen is, according to the Association of American Publishers, publishers' revenue from adult fiction fell more than 11 percent in the last two years, and adult nonfiction sales rose nearly 11 percent to $6.18 You know, it's interesting. Publishers— are pretty open about the fact that this is cannibalizing fiction sales. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like additive. It's not like the case with audiobook sales where you see this big boom and people say, well, it's not taking away from print sales. In this case, you know, it is hurting, I think, the audience for fiction.
0: Here's a question. Is there any other possible reason for the decline in fiction sales that maybe has to do with the quality of the fiction itself? I mean, is it all – can we blame it all on the news cycle and on people's sort of frayed attention spans and the fact that the media is skewed so heavily towards politics and the news? Or is there something about the kinds of books that are being published that maybe isn't resonating with readers?
4: That's a really good question. I think publishers are more comfortable pointing fingers elsewhere, you know, and saying, look, how could we possibly compete against this melodrama every right. day? We have all this great books. Day. It's not our fault. Exactly. But on the other hand, if you're looking at big breakout fiction hits, you know, in the past, we haven't had one of those like A Gone Girl or Girl on the Train or Fifty Shades or something that becomes this pop-cultural phenomenon that suddenly you have to read it because all your friends are talking about it and there's a movie coming. And I think that has probably contributed in addition to the political news cycle. Right. All the
0: talkers this year were basically political
4: books. Exactly. If you look at the best-selling books of the year, you're looking at Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, which sold, I think, two and a half million copies. Bob Woodward's book sold more than a million copies. James Comey's book sold incredibly well.
0: On the other hand... The biggest best-selling book of 2018 is Michelle
4: Obama. Sort of blew everyone out of the water when she came in um, late in the year, but
0: still sold more than two million copies quite quickly. So, all right. So there are there are some I guess happy stories in there. That's right. All right. Thanks, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what they are reading and reviewing are critics Jennifer Salai, Carl Segal, and Dwight Garner. Hi, guys. Hey, Hi, All right, Jen, you reviewed a book today, as we are recording on Thursday, about a very interesting trial. Why don't you tell us a little
5: bit about that? So it's a tale of the Gilded Age, basically, or actually just right at the end of the Gilded Age in 1893, a woman named Madeline Pollard filed a lawsuit of broken promise to marry against WCP Breckenridge, who was a five-term representative from Kentucky. And she said that she had had a long relationship with him, almost lasting a decade, that they met on a train when she was 17 and he was 47, and that she bore two children by him, that he convinced her to give up, and that Eventually, he broke off the engagement, and the way she found out was that he married somebody else, his distant cousin. So in those days, filing a lawsuit for a broken engagement for a woman actually wasn't that uncommon because it was a time when for women, you know, their economic options were limited. And so to have entered a relationship with somebody who promised to marry you and then to have him break it off actually had huge ramifications for a woman's future often. And so this was a case that went to trial and the author of the book, Patricia Miller, you know, really sort of sets up the context in terms of what was happening in the United States at the time where people were really looking for a scandal because this was a time when there was a financial crisis at the beginning of 1893. And so You know, there was a lot of unemployment, a lot of economic misery, and this was a diversion for a lot of people, even if for the woman involved, it was a very serious matter. And, you know, she also sets it up in terms of the sexual mores at the time, where typically, you know, women were the ones who had to worry about, quote-unquote, ruined reputation, the idea of a fallen woman, that that was— something that really loomed large in the public imagination. And what was interesting about this case was that, in fact, she ended up getting a lot of public sympathy, and he was looked at with a lot of contempt and disdain by the newspapers, by the public. And part of that had to do with the fact that actually her case, as her lawyers presented it, was stronger. She had a lot of people who were able to corroborate their relationship and— you know, the fact that he was presenting her to people in Kentucky society because he was a member of the aristocracy, essentially. He was presenting her as somebody that he was engaged to. And he had a hard time making a convincing case to people that even though he said that they did have a relationship, that he was denying the children, denying the engagement, and people didn't really feel sympathetic toward him.
0: I have to think that the subtitle of the book, which is the title is Bringing Down the Colonel." the subtitle is A Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age and the quote-unquote Powerless woman who, woman who Took on Washington is like a Post Me Too Britain subtitle.
5: I think so. I mean, I think—so Miller was working on this book apparently for more than a decade, so she began this long before any of the Me Too revelations. But I do think that the—you know, it happens, as as sometimes happens with books, that they really land at the right time, and this book definitely can does. I, can
6: I ask yes. you a question? So the woman's name was, was Pollard? Pollard. I just realized something wonderful. Do you know what the word Pollard means? No, it's an agricultural slash farming word that means to cut the horns off of something. Oh, <laughs> That's incredible!
5: Amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. That's what, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So fitting, a fitting name too. Yeah.
0: All right, I have to know, Carl, how you have this nugget of wisdom about I
6: farming. Mean, I'm from Punjabi old farming family, you know. But no, no, no I don't know. I, I think I probably like, picked it up reading something. But it's it's one of those words that I collect. That I just, it's just so it's so good.
0: So good. There are so many interesting components to this story. But one of the things I thought was interesting
5: was that Breckenridge actually was $50,000 in debt, right? Or he didn't have any money and she was suing him for $50,000? He, well, he was. she was suing him for $50,000 and he didn't have a lot of money. He was in debt, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, was another, this is another thing that Miller brings up, which is that the sort of accusation that she was looking for for a windfall couldn't necessarily hold with somebody like him because he didn't have the resources. You know, and, and she wants to make the case early on. She sort of sets it up as here is this woman who really wanted to make essentially a feminist point. I mean, she doesn't use the word feminist, but that's sort of the point that she wants to make. It it becomes less clear that her motives were totally about abstract justice. I think I think it's fair to say that you know, like any human being, her motivations were probably pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did have a long relationship with this man and he broke it off by marrying somebody else. I mean, that's, you know. I had another question too, which was that you mentioned that he
0: and she had two children during their period of engagement that he...
5: Not during the engagement, during the relationship. And then she had a miscarriage while she says they were engaged.
0: And so given the social norms at the time. Did that not count against her on a character level that she had had these two children with him prior to proper... Well, I think
5: that that was the argument that his team tried to make, his Mm -hmm. legal team tried to say...
0: This woman is already so fallen.
6: She's she's so so
5: fallen, these children weren't by him. I mean, that was, you know, that was sort of a standard defense, I think, for men who were... um, Still is. (laughs) Right, exactly. So... And, you know, another thing that Miller points out, which I couldn't really get into in the in the review, but which I also thought was really interesting, was that at the time, you know, there was a whole, it was like an infrastructure of assignation houses, foundling asylums, places where women could give birth in secret that was basically set up to keep these relationships hidden and to protect the men involved. So, oh, wow. you know, that's also something that, was talked a lot about in the trial as well as the book
6: mm. the male reputation industrial complex
5: essentially <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: yes all right well another book where the men bear a lot of guilt but in this story i think are largely absent is the book that you reviewed parle
6: i reviewed a book by scolastique mukasanga called the barefoot woman mukasanga is a french writer whose star has been rising over the last 20 years i think she's written about 6 books and she was born in, in Rwanda, and and she's been writing about what happened to her family during the genocide. She and her brother were the only ones who survived. Thirty-seven members of their family were killed. And in, in this book, this is her—it was her second book, but it's, it was just recently published and, and translated into English. It's a companion to her first book, Cockroach, which is more explicitly about the horror and what she was able to learn in her childhood. In this book, The Barefoot Woman— she does something she does something different it's sort of you know it's more of a minor book i think it's best read as a companion to cockroach but what she wants to do is she wants to she wants to make through language a shroud for her mother she was not able to bury her mother she's trying to both bring her mother to to life on the page Mm -hmm. but then also somehow find a way to commemorate her and and to give her peace it's a very simple book it's a very short book it's broken into these chapters I mean, it's almost like in order to write this, she had to give herself assignments. So there's like a chapter on bread. There's a chapter on sorghum. It's, it's you know, these little small aspects of, of their life. And she has these little meditations and she tries to remember how it was, how they were. And it's a powerful book. And, and in part because she does talk about the genocide. She does talk a little bit about the roots of it. She does talk about what she learned. But what she really wants to do, what I felt, is to make her family members... Wants to give them their life. They are not their deaths. They are not mm-hmm. how they died. And she wants to resurrect them and this whole world that is gone. And it's it's very detailed. It's it's done with a great deal of tenderness and charm. Um, it's a difficult book to read, obviously in many ways. But it's not like Cockroach, which was it has such. There's scenes in that book that I can't even think about. You mm-hmm. know, I was thinking mm-hmm. about it as I was writing the review. I was like, Do I owe it to her to quote some of these things? And I couldn't even write them down. It's that kind of, it's that kind of a painful book.
0: And yet, I came away mm-hmm. from reading your review wanting. Really to read two other books, yeah. Cockroach and the Philip Goryevich. Yeah, the
6: Goryevich is a really great book, and I reread it when I was, when I was writing this book. And uh, I mean, it's astonishing that so the title of the book is We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families. And it's, you know, it's a history of the, of the genocide. It goes back to the roots of, you know, what caused it. It's sort of based on a lot of reporting that Goryevich did on the ground and oral histories and testimonies. And it's an incredibly, incredibly powerful book.
0: Dwight, you didn't have as kind words for the author of the book. <laughs> I that had you a hard were... week,
7: Pam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tell joking us about I, the book. I, I was lucky enough to get to uh, read the new Booker Prize winner, uh, uh, Milkman, by Anna Burns, who's a writer from Northern Ireland. And her book is set there in the 1970s. And Milkman is about a young woman. She's 18. She likes to wander the streets of her town. Wander might be might be an awkward word, but walk. She walks to and from work and to school and wherever uh, while reading a book, and she reads. She reads classics, you know, she reads Dickens and um, she reads Gogol because she's trying to escape the 20th century. The troubles are happening. Her world is sort of grim. And so she's disliked in the town for seeming aloof. And then the, the book's title, Milkman, comes into play because there's this local political sort of revolutionary thug celebrity who takes a sexual interest in her and starts trying to pick her up and starts showing up where she is. And he's very threatening, and and it sort of turns her life upside down. And and once she's seen as this person's girlfriend, the milkman's girlfriend, I'm not going to tell you whether she actually is or is not in the book by the end. But um, she becomes sort of an object of of local fascination and extreme deference, and people give her free things. And the book is not uninteresting, but it's it's extremely it's very difficult to read. She has a, she has a style. Filled with circumlocutions and every every qualification is itself qualified, and the sentences run on and on and on. And I just felt that, and you know, I, I, there's nothing. I mean, difficult fiction can can be terrific fiction. I felt that the amount of effort required to penetrate her sentences was not always worth. You know, it wasn't always worth it. I just felt like you know, as Nietzsche said about some kind of thinkers, that she was sort of muddying the water to make it appear deeper than it was. <laughs>
0: I think my favorite line from your review was, "Reading this book to me felt interminable, and I would not recommend it to anyone I like."
7: <laughs> so that implies there are some people I'm recommending it to. Which I, have not I done. know Dwight. we
0: warned
5: the desk that if Dwight says, "You know what? You really have to read next," uh, I have a question
6: though. I have a question about difficulty in fiction. Do you have a certain, or difficulty, in, frankly, in nonfiction? Do you guys have a sense? Of like a rule, an internal rule for yourself, like when it seems to be working, when it doesn't seem to be working.
7: I don't think so, Pearl. Do you? I mean, I, for me, it's just you know when you're reading Frank McCarthy's mm-hmm, naughtiest mm-hmm. stuff or Faulkner's naughtiest stuff or Mrs. Dalloway, there's just this sense that that you understand what the writer's project mm-hmm. is. Not just that, but you're you're gleaning sort of thoughts and impressions of the world, and you just feel. That there's something building inside of you that I just didn't get with this book.
6: It just felt haphazard. It just felt for the sake of it. I mean, as things. I
7: said, she's not untalented, and I wouldn't have been. I don't think as harsh as I was, except for the fact that she's won the Man Booker Prize. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. And, is it
0: easier to to come down hard on a book when it's it been is? If she had like been a that? first,
7: if she, this had been a first novel, had ever talked about. I probably wouldn't have reviewed it. But but since it's become a very big deal, and since I was so frustrated by it, I really it sort of. Just, Killed my mood for a week. I have to pick it up again. I just felt that I should give an authentic sense of that to the reader, of the right. frustration I felt. Other readers may like the book a lot. Clearly, some have.
0: Has either of you read Anna Burns before? I haven't. Isn't it her first book? Is it her first book? I thought I, it no, was her it's third. not. Her,
7: it's her third. It's third book. And I'm not sure the other ones have been published in the U.S. They may have been. I'm not certain.
0: Well, this one, I think, was originally scheduled for February. And the publisher, Gray Wolf, moved it up to December after it won the prize. Yeah, to catch
7: the ride. And it sold very well. And, you know, a part of me feels like there are a lot of readers who kind of feel like a joke has been played on them when they, you know, start reading this in, in England after the spring of the Man Booker. Although some books aren't for everyone.
0: Is December a hard time of the year to be a book critic?
7: Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, we've been talking. We, for, we all slumped. Uh, <laughs> well, it's just, it's just a, uh, publishers want to get their big books out a little before this. So there's time for some momentum to build. So December tends to be a very dry bleak, month. Yeah. Bleak, but yeah, barren. But, some, but sometimes some weird books have sneaked through. I can't remember now what the titles have been. But I was an editor, as you know, as all of you were before we Became yeah. Critics at the Book Review. And there was always like one great Book that kind of yeah. slipped through in December yeah, and I, got some good play on the cover of the Book Review because there was nothing else coming the, the out. Twi- where, where is it this year? I where is the one book that the three year? of us can review together? I can do. <laughs>
0: I mean, I kind of feel like it's like July at the movies, which is that you know the, especially for global films and maybe for global literature that, like, people sneak in, they're little, they're small, they're books that they never expected to get a lot of attention? I don't know.
6: I'm going to review Milkman again next week. <laughs> right. And then I'll do a third take <laughs> yeah. the week after. I would
0: actually really I recommend you both that. read it. Actually, I might. All right. So you know what's coming, podcast listeners. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.